you in our study on the church covenant and just highlighting biblical values that we all need to be committed to uh, if we're going to really be the church. And I hope we are dislodging the idea that somehow we could be the church and not be committed to what the Bible says the church is. That somehow we could, we could call ourselves Christians but not really be following Christ. Having some religious idea that if, if we attend a certain meeting or call ourselves by a certain name or believe a few things, that we're really Christians. Well, you know, that would be welcome to America, but that would not necessarily be welcome to the body of Christ. The body of Christ is actively pursuing the person of Christ. And so we, we need to know what he has to say. And how he says to live. Now, I know this may sound like it's the most basic thing in the world to possibly be said, but uh, it is the most neglected thing in the church that's going on today. People who want to be called Christians, but who don't have any idea what the Bible says, they don't spend any time reading it. Don't stay in step with God because they don't pray. And they don't really know God, don't have a heart and passion for him. Well, that's not really a Christian. And so these are very necessary things. These are not, as I said last week, these are not rules that we've created for Lakeview Christian Center that, uh, you know, if you want to be a part of our club, you know, everywhere, everybody wears blue on Tuesdays. You know, this is, this is not what this is going after. Uh, well, we may have packaged this into a presentation that's gone through a number of weeks and we've kind of concisely said, here's what we're committed to. Uh, but no way would we want these things to, to reflect who we are as a local church. We want them to reflect what the Bible says every local church ought to be. What we're trying to stay away from is saying you, you have to sign on and be in agreement for things that uniquely are about us. Like, you know, Lakeview Christian Center has to be your favorite name for a church. And if that's not the case, then you can't be a member here. Uh, no. Uh, you can hate that name. You can not like the way we dress. You can uh, not like the style of instruments. You can, you can not like all those things and, and still be a member of the body of Christ here. But if you don't agree with biblical principles about what it is to be a Christian in the local church, then you cannot be a member of the local church. Now, functionally speaking, this, I'm not really introducing any news to anybody, am I? Because many people show up in buildings who are not really a part of what's going on there. And, and there's going to be a day of discovery. The Bible speaks of people that, that they went out from among us, those who walk with Jesus. They went out from among us because they never were really part of us. And we want to bring to reality, here's what it means to be the church. Are we in agreement? Yes, I am. Well, then we commit to walking this way together. And that's what this whole series is about. This morning... I titled this morning, Committed to God's Economy of Prayer. We want to be, as a local church, committed to God's economy of prayer. And I don't know, if you've been around Christianity for a while, you've probably come in contact with that word economy. God has an economy. Well, what on earth does that mean? I've, I've, I've used that term plenty. I've never defined it. So I just assume everybody knows what that means. Uh, I don't know if there's a... Uh, actual book somewhere that has a good definition for the economy of God. So I've just kind of created something that makes sense to me anyway. If you look up the word economy in your local dictionary, it would, it would mean the careful management of available resources. Or it would mean a system of managing the production, distribution, and consumption of goods. That would be just your general 
term for economy. But what we find out when we get to the Bible, we find out that God has an economy. He has a way of doing things. If you read and study the economics of the Bible, you end up finding that God has a means of, of producing and distributing His will. His grace comes into life in a certain way. God interacts with the earth and with man in a certain way. And there's economics involved in it. And he follows certain patterns and he educates us about those things. And he says, here, I want you to do this so that the goods that I have in heaven located right here in my warehouse, my throne of grace, will get distributed into these various locations. And there'll be people receiving it and their lives will be touched and affected by it. Well, and we have lots of pictures like that, you know, around America. We distribute goods. We get them there. We have pipelines. And you know, everybody knows if you follow the economics of life, if, if crude oil prices go up, it touches every area of life because crude oil touches so many uh, things that we buy and the way that we live. Well, you know, there are factors in the economy of God that the church can end up, if you don't follow the economics correctly, you can end up in uh, inflation. You can end up in a depression, uh, recession. These factors can actually come into the church and affect the mood of the church. And many times it's because the church isn't following God's economy. Now, here's where the danger lies for us. And it's, it's, it's because we have kind of a blurry theology. We tend to blur our theology into stuff. For instance, God's an infinite God, isn't he? So how many ways does an infinite God have that he can do things? He must have an infinite way that he can do things, right? And you marry that theology together with God as a sovereign God that we understand from the Bible that it's not as though God gets to the end of the age and grades himself and says, you know, 60% of the time I accomplish what I set out to do. We have a theology that says at the end of time, God is going to be found 100% to have accomplished what he set out to do. So you have this infinite God with so many ways he could be doing things. And really, in the end, doesn't it all just come out in the wash? And you come to an issue like prayer. And the danger for us is to blur these theologies together and say, you know, does prayer really matter? I mean, sure, I know God says for us to pray about certain things, but he's an infinite God. He probably could do it a different way if I don't pray. He probably could. He'd pull that off. I mean, and he's sovereign to boot. So, you know, if I pray or I don't pray, doesn't in the end God just go ahead and accomplish what he's going to accomplish anyway? Now, these are interesting thoughts. Probably we don't really think these things out. We just practice them, don't we? I mean, if we went back and looked this week, how many of us really felt like we prayed in the way in which God called us to pray? As people, I want to ask you for hands. But did we pray that way? Now, if we didn't, are we at peace this morning or are we in a panic? We didn't pray the way God called us to pray. Well, you know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, are you concerned your life is about to fall apart? Are you concerned that the wheels are about to come off your life? If you're not, it's because you have blurry theology. It's because you think, well, I didn't do it this way, but God's infinite. He'll just do it another way. If I didn't pray, he'll just do something else. He'll make up for that in a different way. And he's sovereign anyway. So, you know, at the end of the week, it just works out. It just does. Well, the problem with those thoughts is you never find the Bible sounding that way. They, they, that's human reasoning imposed on the Bible. It makes sense to us. But the problem is the Bible never signs on for that. If you, if you did, you'd have a bunch of people that looked like they were in the late 60s smoking rope, 
sitting on the edge of some place, just kind of going, hey, man, it's all right. Chill out, man. It's fine, really. Do you find Paul a chilled kind of guy? I find Paul on the edge of his seat. I find him like he needs to settle down a little, doesn't he? Paul, you're very intense. You're very urgent. Hey, take it easy, Paul. God's sovereign. Don't you know that? Come on, let's go back and read Romans 9 through 11 again. Paul, I don't think you understood what you wrote. But yet he's urging people to pray. He's urging them to do things. He's urging them to take action. He's eager. He's, He's urging them, put that guy out of the church. What are you people doing? Paul, lighten up, man. God's infinite. So we don't do it his way. He'll just do it a different way. Well, your God's not big enough, Paul. See, the Bible never sounds this way, but we live as though it does sound this way. And so what we're desperately needing is we need to embrace the economy of God. And there's two areas that I want to go into, and I wanted to try and do them both today, but that's just not going to happen. We need to be committed to an economy of prayer, and we also need to be committed to an economy of giving finances. And both of those are not insignificant issues in the kingdom of God. And so we, we're only going to do prayer today. I think it's, it is so significant. This, this factor in your life is touching everything about you, even if you don't realize it is. It's the bloodstream coursing through your veins spiritually. And so if it's, if it's unhealthy, you are unhealthy. Well, I don't feel unhealthy. You are unhealthy. You cannot possibly be healthy, and I can't either. Turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. The context here is this is the triumphant entry of Jesus, the end of his ministry into Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. They have, they have laid out. The palm branches and the crowds have all gathered. And, and Hosanna, Hosanna, he's riding into Jerusalem. And you remember, there's an exchange here that on the following day, Jesus walks by a, a fig tree. Remember, he sees this fig tree and doesn't have any figs on it. And he wants fruit from it, and there is no fruit. And so he curses the fig tree. He makes a statement. and it gets the attention of the disciples. But he makes a statement, I expect to see fruit. Expect it. And he curses that which doesn't produce fruit. And then he, then we get to this situation here in verse 15. Where now he's going to walk into, he's just cursed the fig tree. He's going to walk into another setting that lacks fruit. And it's the setting of the temple. And he picks up the story here in verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. And began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now this is, this is a passionate scene, right? It doesn't take long to read it. It takes a little while for it to unfold. And somebody flipping over tables, this is a scene. This is not just Jesus saying something, he was a little loud. This is a scene. This is a raucous. He is flipping tables. And, and if you can get the, the, the scene of what's going on in the temple here, some of it's not completely inappropriate. But there's activity here, and, and he wouldn't allow people to carry things through the temple. Now, if, if you can get this picture, I think this is the temple's become a shortcut. Instead of people having to walk around the temple, 
just cutting through. And Jesus is about to say something here in full of passion. And you have to catch two sides of what he's saying here. Verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, there's, there's something here, and I think sometimes when we read this passage, we neglect the thing that really is the greatest fuel in this statement. There's a fire in what Jesus is doing. There's a fire in what he is saying, and it's fueled by something. It's fueled by the statement, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now, remember, let's, let's get this setting straight. Where is Jesus? Jesus is in the temple. Remember how the temple came about? And we're going to trace some of this out today. If you back up from the temple, you're going to back up to the tabernacle. The tabernacle, which was revealed to Moses as God collected a people. And God said, I want you to build me a tabernacle. Why? So that my presence may dwell among you. So this is the origins of the temple. Uh, Tabernacle, then temple. And then when we push farther into the New Testament... Where's the temple now? The temple has become the church. You are the living stones that God is is being built together into a a temple, a dwelling place of the Lord. And you see where the Lord never departs from that theme? It's always been in Scripture. It's just changed the way it's been explained to us. But now shadows have become reality. Now the church is on the scene. What the Bible was awaiting for all these years is now found in the church. The church is the temple. The church is the tabernacle. The church is the dwelling place of God. So now we're into the real deal here. And what God had in mind has come to pass. Now, that's the setting from which we get the passage that we started this series with. When when Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, Timothy, I'm writing these things to you. Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus. He's pastoring congregation. And he's leading a group of people. And Paul writes to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, I'm writing these things to you. In case I'm delayed. So that you will know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Which is the church of the living God. So this temple now, this house, is the church. And it has certain parameters, and Paul has expectations that are informed by everything that's led up to the church being what it is. All these pictures and images that Jesus walked into the temple and flipped over tables because he didn't see something there. Not just because of what he did see, but I want to make sure we catch this. The fuel for this statement is, my house shall be a house of prayer. Often we think the fuel is the money changers. We think there's corruption. There's corruption in the house of God. These people are shortchanging. And they were. Those things are true. There was corruption taking place. There was sin right there on the decks. And we think, well, that's what Jesus was so upset about. Man, you've got, you know, you got poor little widows coming in here and having to exchange their money for temple money. And they're getting half the value on the dollar. And they have to buy their sacrifices, they've traveled great distances, they're being ripped off. Jesus is upset. 
Listen, the bachelor, you can't possibly begin to understand why he's upset unless you catch what he said. He didn't just say, I can't believe you people are doing this here. I am blown. What are you? Get out of here with your money. I can't believe you guys are doing this here. His fuel comes from my house shall be a house of prayer and you've made it something else. And then he happens to qualify what if they've made it. Now, that's the layout for this. Now, let's back up and figure out how did this house of prayer thing happen? Second Chronicles. Turn back with me to Second Chronicles. Way back in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles chapter 3. And when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, you can read the same account of this. There's, there's dual accounts of some of Israel's history that are in more than one book. Second Chronicles, First Kings would contain much of the same elements here. But in Second Chronicles 3, we're in about the year 1000, approximately 1000 B.C. And Solomon is now going to build the temple. Right, that God has been tabernacling. He's been dwelling in a tent that Moses had prescribed for them for all these years. David has finally, they've settled in the land. They've fought these battles. They've, they've been fighting and contending for the promised land. And now they're settling in. They're not a people on the move anymore. They're people settled in. And David says, you know, it's not right. We're all settled in. We're all building homes for ourselves. We're going to build a temple for God. And so David has this passion to do that. Remember, God says, no, David, you've been a man of war. You've shed blood all over the earth. Um, I appreciate that you have a heart to build me a house, but your son will build the house. Well, this is his son. Solomon is building the house. In verse 1 it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, listen, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now, can you put an asterisk in your mind? Why the Bible highlights that. The temple is being built. The house of God is being built on the site of the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Ornan is a guy, and he's from the Jebusites. And they're building on his land where David did something here. And that becomes very significant later on. But you turn to Second Chronicles, the next few chapters here, verse 6, I mean chapter 6. The next couple of chapters tell you the story of what got built, how they built it. What they put in it, all the ornaments and all the excellence, and they spared no expense to build this house. And there comes a day now where the house is going to be dedicated. So they've gathered, the building is complete, and we have Solomon now standing in front of the people. And there's a huge throng of gathering of people. And he stands before God and he begins to pray. And in verse 12, we have the content of his prayer. So then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. And he had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant. And showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts 
who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now skip over to verse 18. And he continues to pray. He says, but will God dwell indeed with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And then he goes on and he elaborates. He begins, to, he begins to think through the realms of life. God, if we, if we go through this circumstance... Would you hear us when we pray from this place? Or if we go through this one, look, and you just skip through and you can see how many he brings up. Verse 22. If a man sins against his neighbor, is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act. In verse 24. If your people, Israel, are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and they turned and acknowledged your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive. In verse 26, when heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven. And he goes through all these factors and he mentions everything from, from opposition. If there's enemies that oppose us. Now, now they lived... An external life that reflected issues on the inside in their lives. They had real, they, you know, we all have enemies, right? You know, you know who your enemies are? I mean, it's enemies in us. Don't you fight battles every day? Some of our imaginations are just huge enemies to us. Some of the, there are, are issues that the world brings to us that become our enemy. They oppose us. They oppose God's purpose and God's well-being in my life gets opposed. Those are my enemies. Well, they had those enemies, too, in their hearts, but they also had real enemies, guys who were dressed in different outfits with weapons in their hands, and they were coming to cut their heads off. Those were real enemies. And so when, when Solomon prays, he's able to use these pictures. God, if, if we face opposition, right? now don't, don't think like a tribal person. Think like an American now. Because here we are, the people of God. God, if we face opposition, whatever that opposition is, God, if we have sinned, and, and, and the walls have come down of protection. And there are issues now flooding into our lives. And we, we stand in this place and we pray, would you hear from heaven? God, if, if there's no rain, if the economy dries up around us. Right, for them, no rain meant no economy. They're an agricultural society. No rain meant drought, meant nothing's growing, meant we got no crops to sell, we got nothing to eat, we can't do business, we can't trade. God, if that happens... If there's a terrorist strike, if oil prices go through the roof, if the economy in New Orleans goes, goes terribly wrong, God, if the economy gets bad all around us and your people 
gather here in this place? Would you hear from heaven? And would you respond to us? And he goes on and he lists one thing after another of issues that could be in the people's lives. And he pleads for God to hear from heaven and respond. Now look over in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 11. Same context. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear. Yes, Solomon, yes, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Do you want to know how this house became a house of prayer? That's how it became a house of prayer. This place, this gathering, God has granted it unique qualities that do not, listen to me, do not exist anywhere else on earth. You've got to stop reading the Bible like it's some universalist book. People open the Bible and they, they, they don't understand the basics of it. This is a book that is, for the vast majority, most of it is written to the covenant people of God. This is not a book that can be read by the world and understood. If you are outside of covenant with God, all the benefits and promises aren't yours. I know that sounds unfair and it sounds... Maybe peculiar in our ears when we have this idea of a God who is this equal opportunity employer who has to, you know, there's some rule out there that he could get called by the EEOC. And he's not treating everybody the same. Listen, he is not treating everybody the same. I don't know if I like that idea. Listen, we, we, we don't get to vote on these things. God is who God is. He does what He does. We get to discover that, but we don't get to change it. God has written to His people. He created it. If you read through the Bible, the whole Bible, you ever wonder why the Bible doesn't say anything about some people in the world? They existed at the same time these other guys did. There's this one nation, Israel. Goodness gracious, look at all the information about Israel. Find me all the information about Cush and this one and that one and Edom. Oh, they're mentioned in there only in the context of anything that have to do with Israel. 
That's not fair. Doesn't God owe every group of people a book? Doesn't he owe them all a big book? Man, come on, God, what are you doing? Well, he's God, and he doesn't owe them a book. God has an economy. God has chosen to operate in the earth a certain way, and his people are a vital part of that economy. And he writes to them, and he instructs them, and he grants them privileges that he doesn't grant to the rest of the world. Now, that point becomes very, very important in just a minute. Because he has said, I'm I'm going to listen and be attentive to this place, not to every place, to this place. And I will hear from heaven. You have my word. And I will respond to your prayers. I give you my word. God does not give that promise to everyone. He doesn't give it to every location. He doesn't give it to every gathering. It's unique. It's a very limited license that he has given out. I don't know if you remember uh, remember the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, this movie, a few years ago. Um, you know, the archaeologist, Indiana Jones, is trying to find the ark that goes, it's the ark of the covenant. It goes in the temple. Right? So this ark has been missing and there's another archaeologist on the scene who's also trying to find I can't remember whether he was French or German. Do you remember this guy? He was French. I thought he was French. Real arrogant guy. Um, <laughs> but in the movie, he has this moment where he and, and Indiana Jones are both competing to get to the Ark. And, and he's, he's letting Jones know why he's so passionate about this thing. And he says, Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It is a radio transmitter for speaking with God. And you know, when you hear that, it's like, this guy's nuts. But he wasn't completely wrong. In a way, it wasn't just the ark that was that. It was the temple that was that. God gave the temple, the house, a unique dynamic. It was, it was sort of Commissioner Gordon's bat phone. You know, it was a hotline to heaven. It was a direct connection. It was a privilege no one else had. So in a way, it was a transmitter for speaking with God. Now, what this little French guy thought is he thought that you could just dial up heaven and wipe out armies. And you could rule the world with this thing. No. Welcome to Hollywood. But in a biblical sense, there is a sense that this thing that God created gave man access to heaven. In a way that others did not have. Which is a very sobering reality. This house of prayer, in your outline I put a little title there called, is a house of priests. This house of prayer is a house of priests. And you remember the Old Testament priesthood? It's all throughout scripture. It's a very important component. But listen to what in Exodus chapter 19, as God is establishing, this is the Mount Sinai meeting that we studied a few weeks ago. In this meeting, God says in verse 5, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, but I'm making a special arrangement with you guys. You get special privileges. You're going to be my treasured possession, my special people. Distinct and separate from all the other people. I'm going to do something in and through you. This is my economy. God could choose to do it differently. He could have not chosen a people, right? Couldn't he have just done something else? Don't choose a people. Treat everybody the same. Reveal yourself the same way to everybody equally. God has an economy. 
God is infinite, but God has an economy. And when you come to the scriptures, you find God's economy was to deal with a set of people and from them to deal with all the other people. Don't assume that he would do it a different way. The Bible never tells us he would do it a different way. He's going to do his thing through his people. You're going to be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. In verse 6 he says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests? Well, what's with the concept of a priest? What does that mean? God, God is a kingdom of priests. Well, that word priest in the Hebrew, kohen, it means this. The word is used to designate the various classes of priests in Israel. These people perform the function of mediators between God and his people. God called the nation of Israel to be a kingdom of priests. Inherent in this word, kohen, is the word mediator, go-between intermediary God has established something in his economy that he would have people who would be priests who would be intermediaries now you know if you grow up in New Orleans you have a definition for the word priest before you pick the bible up before you step foot in a church you already had an idea about what a priest is that you had a a catholic church tradition idea of what a priest is you did not have a biblical idea of what a priest is the priesthood in the Old Testament is a kingdom of priests. And within that priesthood, there were those who were given unique access to God. Within that time frame and that kingdom, only those were allowed to have direct access to God. Everybody else had to go to them, right? If you wanted to bring a sacrifice, you brought your sacrifice to the priest. The priest offered it to God. If you were unclean and there were issues of sin in your life, you came to the priest, the priest brought the issue to God, heard from God, came back to you, and represented God to you. So there, he, was the, he was your contact point with God. Now, that priesthood existed underneath the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood that was established in the Old Covenant that find its fulfillment in Christ. He is the great high priest. All these... All these references to priests are leading up to the intermediary. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He is the mediator between man and God. Now what's uniquely happened here is a kingdom of priests has become a church of priests. And when Peter speaks in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he speaks to the people of God. He says, you are a chosen generation. He's borrowing all these ideas. You're chosen, you're special people to God, people for God's own possession. You are a royal priesthood. Who is he saying this to? This is not a gathering. I'm not trying to be flip or, or, or rub somebody the wrong way here. But if you don't get the fact that when you become a Christian, you become a priest, and you still think those people who wear a certain outfit are priests, you, you have annihilated the New Testament. You don't just have a different concept operating in you. You are stomping all over the work of God. Because you are now a kingdom of priests. You are now priests of God. Every one of us. Well, well how, do I, how do I get to that reasoning point? Everyone who is saved is in Christ. Christ is the priest before God. He is the 
high priest. He is the priest before God. Every one of us who are in Christ are priests before God. By being in Christ, we are priests before God. And when the Bible calls on us to act and live, it calls on us to be intermediaries. There's a role given to the church, the house of prayer, that we still retain that ability in the economy of God to be in between the world, people, activities on earth, and God has been given to the church, the house of prayer. And that's what we come in contact with. And if you find throughout Scripture, you'll find God is looking for intermediaries. He's, he looks for them. It's like there are moments in time when God's about to act in human history. And in order for him to do differently, he begins to look for a man who will stand as the intermediary and say, God, do differently than that. Look in Psalm 106, verse 19. It's in your outline. It says, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. Remember, this is the foot of Mount Sinai. God's making a deal with them. They're down there making idols. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had gone, who had, had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Y'all remember that exchange at Sinai? Where Moses pleads for the people that God would not wipe them out. Basically, God says, Moses, uh, the people you brought up with you have sinned greatly. Step aside. I'm going to destroy them and I will start over again with you. And a man stands before God. And not just any man, an appointed man stands before God and says, God, no, don't do that. And he has reasons. He has good reasons. And he argues before God. And he says, God, the people, the people of, the, of the world, they're going to see you destroy your own people. God, this is, this, don't do this to your people. And God doesn't destroy them. I want you to read this verse with me and I want you to let it say what it says. I don't want you to, to pull out all your sovereignty issues on me. Listen, I'm the, I'm the biggest preacher of sovereignty in this church. But this is a moment to deal with the reality of what this passage actually says so that I can correctly understand the operation of sovereignty in my life. Therefore, he said he would, verse 23, he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Now, I read that verse, and somehow I've got to factor in the reality. This verse is saying, if Moses had not done that, God would have destroyed them. And that really screws us up, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, there goes the people of God. You know, this is a mess. But Moses' actions were significant, weren't they? Had he not done them, there would have been a significant result had he not done what he did. First Chronicles. Turn back to First Chronicles 21. First Chronicles 21, verse 14. Situation has come up, another sinful situation. David actually has put his confidence in the people of Israel and not the God of Israel. He has, he has taken a census. 
He's numbered them. And, and it, has got, it has brought the judgment of God. And God makes a deal with David. And he says, I'll give you three choices. Uh, David chooses what he thinks would be the mildest of the three. He throws himself into the mercy of God. Well, God's judgment was going to come by an angel who was going to bring uh, judgment upon Jerusalem. Verse 14, we pick the story up. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw. Now, hold on to this thought. The Lord saw what? The Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. Now, I think we actually now, we, we get the conclusion of the story, and we go back to the story now. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David, This is grace. This is grace. The angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And do you understand? God's about to destroy Jerusalem. God arranges a means for him not to do it. God doesn't just change his mind. God has a reason not to do it. Now, God, as we see here, originates the reason not to do it. God tells David what to do in order that God might not destroy them. Verse 19, so David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now, Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him kid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. David said to Ornan, give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the the people. Then Ornan said to David, take it and let my Lord, the king, do what seems good to him. See, I I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. King David said to Ornan, no. But I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. That's a great principle there. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel... And he put his sword back into his sheath. Because a man, an appointed man, stood on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite and made intercession for the people. Now, I don't want to 
bury you in Scripture. I'm guilty of that quite often, but I'm going to anyway. Isaiah 59, verse 15. It says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Now, prophetically, we could look at this as, uh, this is... This is foreseeing his own harm, bringing salvation through his own son. His own son who becomes a man. That's very significant. He's not an angel. He's not from a different race. He is one of us standing before God on our behalf. There's a reason why the Old Testament had that son of God, son of man dynamic to it. When you read back in the Bible, it was significant before God in covenant with man that there be a man that he was in covenant with. It wasn't merely a covenant between the Godhead. It was a covenant between God and man established by the man, Jesus Christ. Because from all the times through scriptures, God looks for a man to stand before him. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach. The same thing Moses did, the same words. Before me, for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Now that's scary to me. God's intention in his righteousness was to judge the sin. And when he looked for a man, it's as though the off-ramp for mercy for God was a man standing and asking for it. And he looked and he looked and he looked and there was no one to stand. And so he poured out his wrath in that moment. What what if we're not reading history here this morning, guys? What if we're reading present realities? What if that's how God's economy operates? What if that's how God accomplishes His will on the earth? Now, quite honestly, I can't find a reason in the Bible to think it's different. That God is still operating out of this economy. Wayne Grudem says, when God threatens to punish his people for their sins, he declares, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If and when God's people pray with humility and repentance, then he will hear and forgive them. The prayers of his people clearly affect how God acts. Now, if you know anything about Wayne Grudem, uh, this is a man who I, I, I don't know too many people who can explain the sovereignty of God better than Wayne Grudem. Who is in this moment saying the prayers of his people clearly affect how God acts. If we were really convinced that prayer changes the way God acts and that God does bring about remarkable changes in the world in response to prayer, as Scripture repeatedly teaches that he does, then we would pray much more than we do. If we pray little, it is because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much 
at all. Is, is prayer significant in the kingdom of God and in God accomplishing His will? Is it, is it really significant? Or does an infinite God have infinitely other ways available to Him? I, I've got to believe if, if in the economy of God that's true, in the moments in which God looked for a man, in the moments in which he looked for an opportunity for mercy rather than judgment, I would have think those would have been perfect moments for God to select one of his other infinite ways to do things rather than awaiting the voice of a man to stand and intercede and act as an intermediary. Or has God created an economy that he doesn't back off from? For whatever reason, this is his economy. He has assigned a unique transmitter for the people of God to be able to speak to him about the earth and its events and its people in a way that is significant. Is there any truth in the verse in James? This is, you know, New Testament, James chapter 4. You have not because you ask not. The infinite God who is sovereign says, you have not in your life because you don't ask. Now, if I, I, I want that verse to bother me. I want it to bother me. I'm too quick to read it and just move on. No, no, no. I, I, want, I want you to do this with me. I want you to let that verse peruse your life for a moment. I want you to find people, events, finances, relationships, Opportunities, work situations, goals, struggles and sin. I want, you to, I want you to let that verse touch every one of those issues. And let it say something just like it sounds. You have not in that because you ask not. Now, I don't like that verse. Because it makes me... It makes me uncomfortable because it makes me too responsible. I don't like to be responsible. I, I like to create theology that, that pushes me to the edge of the universe and makes all of my life actions completely insignificant. And there's a real danger. There's a real danger in theology that gets lopsided in certain categories. You can get lopsided in your sovereignty and push human existence out the window. The next thing you know, there is no theology of human responsibility available anymore. This verse thrusts responsibility into my life. It, it causes me to say, within the realm of my weakness, my sin that I know is there, God's calling me to a level of prayer. And obviously he knows it's not going to be perfect. There'll be weakness in it. But there is a place for my prayers to make a significant impact and their absence to also make a significant impact in my life. And that could be true in various situations that we're facing as people, as we walk out our lives together. And not only is God looking for priests, but God's looking for ambassadors. And I'm not going to build this point at all. You know, ambassadors are those who in foreign countries represent the foreign government. You know, if you're an American ambassador in Italy, uh, you represent the interests of the American government. 
Well, there's this thing about man. You keep seeing it in the Bible. There's this thing about God's will and God's actions and man's involvement with it. That God has not put this big separation between them. Both whether it's as intercessors or ambassadors. So it's interesting that when Jesus instructs his people on how to pray. Matthew 6. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Why didn't somebody stop Jesus on that? And say, Jesus, that, that seems unnecessary. It seems redundant. It seems to me that if your father has a will, who can stay his hand? I mean, haven't you? I mean, even Nebuchadnezzar, when he flipped out, he even recognized that. He even said, you know, there's this God and, and who on earth can possibly stop him? He wants to do something. He does it. So, so Jesus, can you come back and clarify that one for me? It doesn't make sense to me that you're asking for us to ask for his will. If he has a will, it's automatic, isn't it? Or in the economy of God, has God looked for ambassadors who stand on earth amongst all the sinful human beings on a planet that's trying to run away from God, being governed by a, a hostile ruler, and there are people on that planet who say, God, God, we're with you. We want your will. Your will be done here as well as in heaven. We want it. God, you're looking for a voice. You're looking for a people who say, God, we're with you. We want what you want. You have it in me. God, I will stand before you as an intermediary, as one who has access to the hotline. And I will say, if you're looking for a man who wants what you want, you found it right here. I want what you want. I want your will. And somehow God wants that. He wants his people to ask for what he wants. And, and, and it is, I don't, it's, it's a combination of arrogance and stupidness on our part that somehow explains that away. That somehow in our vast ability to, to reason says that doesn't seem necessary to me. If God has a will, then he will accomplish his will. But when the Bible requires us to speak to God about his will and ask for it, we, we, we lose all reasoning in that moment. The Bible simply says do it. It doesn't say argue about it. It simply says do it. So here would be my premise out of those thoughts what if god has given the church to be a house of prayer a gathering of priests who are given the privilege and responsibility to intercede for the purpose of god's mercy versus his judgment and to be the ambassador of man who requests and welcomes god's will on earth but if that's how god's established this thing we call the house of prayer Albert Barnes said the main design of the temple was that God might be there invoked. And the inestimable privilege of calling on him was to be extended to all the nations of the earth. This is the house of prayer. Now, if that's what the house of prayer is, do you understand a little better why Jesus is flipping tables? It wasn't just an issue when he walked in. If you want to go back to Mark 11. Put one finger in Jeremiah 7. We're going to go there as well. It wasn't just an issue of what he found them doing. It was an issue of what he didn't find them doing. Do you understand? He sees the hotline to heaven sitting there. He sees a people who could stand in the gap. He knows that he has a father who's looking for a man who will stand before the throne and ask for the will of God. 
who will call out for God to come and spare people to intercede on behalf of those that God's right judgment will come against them. And he walks into the temple and they're busy doing everything else but that. And not all of it was wrong. Some of it was corrupt. Not all of it was corrupt. The power in this statement is not that that you money changers are ripping people off. The power is this is not what this was supposed to be. What it was supposed to be was a house of prayer. This place has power in it and you guys have become clueless. You don't operate in the power. It doesn't serve the purpose for which it was created. That's the real power in what Jesus says in Mark chapter 11. What he didn't see going on in the temple. Not so much what he did see, what he didn't see going on. And when he makes this statement, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, the context there causes us to quickly just assume, well, people are getting ripped off. That's what's happening here. He walks into the temple and they're getting ripped off. Uh, Jesus is quoting scripture when he says this. He's quoting Jeremiah chapter 7. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. God tells Jeremiah, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Vain and meaningless words. Look in verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. You see where the idea of the den of robbers comes from? It's not just a matter of people were getting ripped off in the temple. The issue was, you people are about everything else but me. You live lives that run in the fast lane for everything else. You worship false gods. There's, there's idolatry going on. There's stealing and murder and committing adultery. You live these lives. But when you come into the temple, you use all the right words. Like they're juju magic charms. Oh, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Vain, empty words. When a life that's not about Jesus. It's not about the kingdom. It doesn't value Him. It practices sin, but it finds its way into the context of a modern church. And it can say all the right little vocabulary words. I mean, no, Jesus' name was not meant to be some uh, stamp. There's some little charm words. They're charm words. Just kind of say them and stuff happens. That's what they were doing. Oh, the temple, oh, the temple. God made all these promises about the temple. Oh, the temple, we're safe, we're delivered because we have the temple. We're the people with the temple. We have the covenant. 
God said, they're empty words. Because your lives, they're not toward me. They're not about me. They're idolatrous. And you neglect the very purpose for which this place exists. And that was the correction that he brings. The den of robbers in Jeremiah's day was people absorbed in idolatrous pursuits, but wanting still to have God's benefits in their lives. And it was also people who had misplaced the purpose of the temple. Now, the question for us from these lessons in the past of both Jeremiah's day and the day in which Jesus comes in and turns over the tables. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it fill in the blank. What has what the church turned into today? Is it, is it a house of prayer? Many functions of the church, a huge and incredibly important one, is that it be a house of prayer. Is it that today? Put this interesting quote in your outline from a research article. It says, what are the most pressing challenges impacting the local church? More than 1,300 ministry leaders from Europe, North America, and elsewhere provided input into their most important issues. The top ten issues facing today's church. Number 10, abortion. Number 9, homosexuality. Number 8, relevance. Number 7, marriage. Number 6, apathy. Number 5, doctrine and worldview. Number 4, evangelism. Number 3, leadership. Number 2, discipleship. And the number one problem listed by ministry leaders facing the church is prayer. The need for more ongoing, passionate prayer in both personal and church life. The thing that Jesus highlighted is so privileged and so unique and so important is the number one problem in the church. Which makes sense, doesn't it? If you're the enemy, you go after the the thing you can get the most bang for your buck. If I can get the people of God to stop praying, I'm going to have my way all day long. Not only in their lives, but if I understand that the Bible has given them a place to intercede on behalf of others and to actually make a difference in their lives, I get to have my way over there too. So if I can, if I can do one thing, I want to pull the plug on prayer. If, I, if that's the only thing I could do as an enemy, I would pull the plug on prayer. And apparently... He's done it quite well. Listen to these great leaders who have served us so well with the way in which they have taught. Andrew Murray says, Christ meant prayer to be the great power by which his church should do its work. The neglect of prayer is the great reason the church lacks greater power over the masses in Christian and heathen countries. John Wesley said, God does nothing but an answer to believing prayer. I think he can make a good case for that. S.D. Gordon, this is a book I can't seem to replace. I at least have quotes from it before it was drowned. He says, you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. We think we can do more where we are through our service than prayer to give power to our service. No. With the blackest underscoring of emphasis, let it be said, no. 
We can do nothing of real power until we have done the prayer thing. Here's a man by my side. I can talk to him. I can bring my personality to bear upon him that I may win him. But before I can influence his will a jot for God, I must first have won the victory in the secret place. Intercession is winning the victory over the chief and service is taking the field after the chief is driven off. And what if you just took that one quote and you walked away from here and you, you let that go into your life? Whether it's into your evangelism, trying to reach a neighbor, friend, family member, whether it's into your home, trying to reach your husband, trying to, trying to lead your children. What if this framed our actions? I think we'd be more biblically informed. John Jowett says, well, now it is in the field of prayer that life's critical battles are lost or won. In prayer, we bring our spiritual enemies into the presence of God and we fight them there. Have you tried that? Or have you been satisfied to meet and fight your foes in the open spaces of the world? If I am like Bunyan's pilgrim and encounter Apollyon on the exposed road and begin my warfare there, I shall be sadly beaten and he will leave me bruised and broken by the way. If your life has a testimony of bruised and broken, bruised and broken, bruised and broken, I can't seem to get the victory. I can't overcome this. This issue is a jail cell in my life. I, 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 I can't deal with this. I can't live victoriously. If you're bruised and broken, ask the question, am I a person who prays? Ask that from a biblical standpoint, not from a modern world standpoint. It's amazing. Listen, all of us are prone to this. It's amazing how quickly we encounter a problem, an issue in our life, and we'll run to somebody else to talk about it. We'll run to that person and that person and that person. We'll have ten conversations with people, not one with God. We'll sit for hours and talk to people about our problems. But we can't muster more than 10 or 15 minutes of prayer. You remember I told us a long time ago about this quote from a pastor in Korea. He had a very different approach to his counseling. People would come to him with problems. And his first response to them was, you go three days, prayer mountain. Three days, prayer mountain. You come back. In other words, don't talk to me until you've talked to God. The power is in you connecting with God. And we've made it, we've made it too convenient. We, just, we want somebody else to solve my problem, give me some feedback, tell me what I should do. And we don't have any idea what God wants to say to us. Prayer is, is the place of getting the power and getting the victory and getting the favor from God. But the church has altered its course. No longer walks out these principles. Matt, go ahead and, and come. We're going to close. In your outline, it says, it is through an economy of prayer that God brings his mercy, his salvation, his will, his kingdom into the lives of men. That is why the church is to be a house of prayer. And whatever, whatever churches are tempted to aim at today, it's, it's very tempting to become other things besides a house of prayer. And some of them not wrong. When Jesus encountered the temple, it wasn't that everything that was going on there was wrong. There should have been access to animals that could be used in sacrifices. People traveled for days. They couldn't bring with them their sacrifices. So they would travel for days, and when they got to the temple, they would buy the sacrifice. That wasn't a problem. So not everything that churches do is, is wrong except prayer. 
But the temptation is to begin to lose the importance of prayer amongst all the other things that are going on. And next thing you know, it's just very displaced and seldom occurs. And we're, we're about a bunch of other things. Church is called to evangelism, but evangelism without prayer, I don't know what that is. It certainly can't be a spiritual act of evangelism. People, churches put a huge amount of emphasis on trying to create strategies on how to be more appealing to people and you know, front door presence and uh, how to create opportunities to where seekers can come in and, and be a part. And you, know, you can do all that. You can attend all the seminars. You can study people. You can become. But where's the emphasis on prayer? It's very rare to find prayer meetings today. It's very rare. It used to be somewhat common in the church. It's very rare today. And what prayer meetings tend to be, when you do find them, in very few churches this is different, are a few faithful old ladies. Where's the rest of the church? Where's the rest of the church? Come on, I, I, I'm, okay. I'm standing with you in the crosshairs here. I live as busy a life as anybody does. And my busyness constantly competes with my prayer life. Constantly. Whether it's lack of energy due to busyness or lack of time available due to busyness. But, and you know what? And, and I want to I I escape the awkwardness of this. Listen, I prayed the other night and I had to confess to God, God, I want my excuses to sound so noble. I want all the reasons why I'm not in prayer as I should be. I want them to sound just right. I've got, got some good ones, God. You know that. But my motives behind them are lacking reality. What was, what was going on in Jeremiah 7 when they had converted the house of prayer into a den of robbers? They were busy with lots of other fun stuff, weren't they? People didn't run after Baal because Baal had a more strict set of commandments than God. People ran after Baal because there was pleasure available immediately. Sensual goals that they had. Lifestyles that were intriguing to them. That led to the other practices as well. Stealing and adultery. What are we going to do as modern Americans when we stand before God? What are we going to say? We were just busy? Busy is a reflection of priorities, isn't it? I'm busy with what my priorities are. But God, God has... God has given the church a responsibility and a privilege that no one else has. Do you understand that if, if the church doesn't intercede for the mercy of God, can you tell me who does? And even if you could find somebody who did, if they're not the church, they don't have access to God. So you can't be outside of the priest, Christ, and think that you have access to God. No, it's the priest who has access to God. Everybody else has to go through the priest. If you're in Christ, you do have access to God. If you're outside of Christ, then your prayers are not intercessory prayers. You've not been granted that privilege. The church has been granted that privilege. It is our responsibility. The commitment to God's economy of prayer that we're going to put in the church covenant. 
says, I agree that God desires for his church to be a house of prayer, and that the prayers of the saints play a significant role in God's will coming to pass on earth as it is in heaven. I therefore commit to make personal and corporate prayer a priority in my life and by God's grace to avoid its neglect or decline. Now, I hope that I prayed over this message and I really asked the Lord that He would give us insight from His Word that would be motivational. He would let us see His economy in such a way that, that it grasps my heart. And it does for me. It grasps grabs me and it lets me see ah my prayers are significant my activity of prayer actually does make a difference and maybe i've been lost amongst just hoisting up some words and not realizing if anything's going on and just you know feeling like, oh does this really need to happen when i get back to the word of god i find out my prayers are significant perhaps in ways that i won't see now but i'll see later years later in heaven one day But I pray for us to be grabbed by God's economy, that he does have a means of bringing his will to pass. And and here right now, I guarantee, like me, many of us have stopped praying for things. We've lost family members. And we've just, we've prayed for them for a while, we've run out of gas, and we've just stopped praying for them. And do you understand, can you put yourself in the role of David, David on on the, the... threshing floor of Ornan and Jebusite. Can you become Moses before God? So, God, don't judge him. God, please, let your mercy prevail over your judgment for this one. Because in reality, the Lord says he looked for a man. He looked, he looked. And the tragedy would be that he didn't find anybody and judgment came. This is a sobering reality, isn't it? But it's not something that we can't do. Listen, it's not. The commands of God are not burdensome. They become burdensome when they have to compete with other values. That's when they become a burden. They're in the way of me wanting to do something else. God, I want to do something else. I don't, I don't want daily times of prayer because I want something else. I don't want to show up for corporate prayer. It means I've got to get here an hour early. Let's ask this morning for God to make us a house of prayer. Let's ask for God to give us a fresh commitment in our hearts. Whatever changes have got to be made, that that in my life there will be a category. There's a category called dinner in my life. Category called lunch. Some of us even have a category called breakfast. Some have a category called snacks. We have these categories. We're faithful to them. They're immovable. If we don't have dinner, it's kind of like, you know, the whole whole day is thrown off, isn't it? Well, we're not eating dinner? You didn't fix anything? I mean, I'm disoriented. I'm going to fall down. Uh, You know, but, but prayer doesn't have a category like that. If we didn't pray, we didn't even notice. If we didn't pray for days and we come in with a message like this, now we noticed. But let's ask God for help. Let's ask God for grace. Let's stand up together. Lord, if I were to go back to the days when I first met you, everything was new. Reading your word was intriguing, adventurous. Changes in my life. God, it was like, what were you going to do next? 
Finding other believers? Wow. That was, that blew me away. There are other people who love God. I could walk with them. We could run together. They could share things with me from their life. I was encouraged with somebody to lift my head when I was down. Lord, being a part of the church was, it was exciting. But Lord, many of us are 10 and 20 years later. It's not new anymore. It's not the latest thing. Kind of things like prayer become words in a long list of words. God, by your mercy, and it would be mercy, Lord, we don't deserve for your patience with us in this category. Lord, we would deserve for you to come in here and turn chairs upside down. Knock over speakers, pianos. Say, what have you done to my house? That red phone over there in the corner with the dust all over it. Don't you know what it's for? Don't you know there are real people awaiting you picking it up? Don't you know my purposes await your asking for them? What are you doing? And Lord, if we need to hear the sounds of the coins of our church being scattered everywhere, then Lord, let us hear your correction in our lives. Lord, we appeal for grace from you that's fresh to inspire our lives, to inform us accurately, to give us lives, not just a house of prayer, but lives of prayer as priests, each of us accessing your throne, learning to persevere, learning to be a people who will not take no for an answer. Learning to take your will and, and over and over and over again insist on it before your throne. To be those, as Isaiah said, who, who give you no rest until you make your people a praise in the earth. God, make us that kind of church. Lord, make us to be people. When we say we're, we're part of Lakeview Christian Center, God, may it be that that is a house of prayer. These people are a part of a house of prayer. In their lives, personally, in their time, they come together. They find opportunities. They gather in small groups. They gather corporately. And they know that they pick up the transmitter to heaven and they call down grace from God. And that when God looks for a man here, He finds men and women standing before your throne, making a difference that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can I ask you guys, uh, there would be many prayers that that right now would be floating up in our hearts saying, this is important, this is important, and, and they are important. And as you are sensing them, please put them fresh back before God. Ask for grace to pray over those things in a, in a new way. With, with whole new faith that God will give to you. Um, I want to make sure you're aware that you know, as we walk through the rebuilding process, you know, if God's wanting to do something in the future of this church, the enemy does not want it to occur. 
If putting our feet back in Lakeview means people are going to be affected and saved. If building that church the way we're seeking to build it means that we're going to plant churches out of it. And we're going to become regionalized in what we do. The enemy does not want that to happen. Every time there's an opportunity for him, he will take advantage of it. Please don't assume that the infinite sovereign God can do it differently. There's no biblical case for that. Now, here here are realities. Uh, We are having interviews 